This morning we will be in Matthew 6, 19 through 24, if you want to turn there. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. And uh, before we open up, let's have a word of prayer. Our Lord, we just, <clears throat> we just thank you for this opportunity once again to come together and to um, just worship together as your people who you have ransomed for your glory. Um, thank you for the praises we're able to sing to you and, and just for the many reasons you've given us to praise you. And Lord, now I ask that as we open up your word, that uh, these words would not be my words, but that they would be yours and that they would bring glory to you um, and that you would encor encourage your people uh, just through your word that is spoken. So we love you. We're so thankful for what you've done for us. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. It was rubbing against my shirt. Well, what I'd like to do this morning is spend some time discussing a matter that's very near and dear to the American heart, and that is the topic of wealth and possessions. Um, I don't think, uh, I think most of us Americans, I don't think we, we realize exactly how wealthy and prosperous our country is, and I don't think we really uh, realize the, the true extent as to how blessed we really are. Um, I was reading this week and came across an article that said Americans profoundly underestimate how rich they are compared to the rest of the world. So, so this article said that the average U.S. resident estimated that the global median individual income is about $20,000 a year. Right, that, was, that was the estimation of these people who were interviewed. They figured that globally, the median income is $20,000 a year, when in fact, the true number was a fraction of that. Most of the world lives on an average of $2,100 per year. Right? And similarly, Americans typically place themselves in the top 37th percentile of the world's income distribution when the truth is that the vast majority of U.S. residents rank comfortably in the top 10th percentile. Right? And so we are, we are truly a wealthy people as American citizens, are we not? And so, so I believe more than anything that wealth has actually been one of the biggest hindrances to the gospel in America. When we share the gospel with people, they have what they need, right? Or at least they think that they do, right? We share the gospel with people who have their needs met. They have food, they have shelter, they have clothing. Many people have a savings that they've saved up. And so in America, it's hard to convince people that they have a need for something when they have all the earthly things that they want. And furthermore, wealth is a hurdle within the church as well. It's a tool that Satan uses to keep Christians occupied so that they're not fruitful for the kingdom of God. Right? Wealth keeps Christians from wholly devoting themselves to Christ. And so this morning, I want to spend some time talking about the dangers of storing up treasures on earth and then I want to spend some time talking about what the Christian pursuit should look like, right? What are the dangers of storing up treasure here on earth, and what should our pursuits look like according to the Word of God? And so this morning, we're going to be in Matthew 6, but um, just be warned, I'm going to be uh, holding loosely to this uh, passage. We'll be going many places in Scripture, and so 
just be warned of that. We will be jumping around. But here's what our passage says this morning. The Bible says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what is the danger of storing up treasure on this earth? That's going to be the first half of this sermon. What is the danger of storing up treasure on earth? The first uh, point I want to propose to you this morning is that storing up treasure on this earth distracts us from the kingdom of God. Right? It, it distracts us from the kingdom of God. It makes us unfruitful. It keeps us from being as fruitful as we possibly could be for God's kingdom while we are here on this earth. If you remember in Matthew 16, Jesus has a very sharp re rebuke to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. And it's not very nice. But here's what that verse says. Here was the problem. Matthew 16 reads like this. It says, And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is a harsh rebuke from our Savior, but there was a legit problem with Peter's mindset. What, what was the problem with what Peter was thinking? Well, his mind, according to Jesus, his mind was set on the things of man, Right? His mind was thinking in terms of an earthly kingdom, an earthly gain, and for this reason, his mind was at odds with the purposes of God. Right? What, what were the disciples thinking when Jesus came and when they found out he was the Messiah? Well, they were thinking another Davidic kingdom. And so they were already sitting there, like, like you know, jotting down their thoughts, like, what am I going to do when I'm sitting in you know, the palace of the king? Right? What's life going to be like? Peter and the disciples, their, their minds were set on earthly things. And, and, and according to God's word, it is impossible to have your mind set on both earthly things and the things of God. Right? It's impossible. The treasures of heaven and the treasures of earth, you cannot have your mind set on both. The Bible says you will either love one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to one or despise the other. One will always consume the weaker. The stronger will always consume the weaker. And so according to God's word, you cannot have your mind set on the things of God and on the things of this earth. 1 Timothy 6, 9, Paul says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation 
into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So what does Paul say about riches in this passage in 1 Timothy 6? Well, he says that the desire to be rich, to be rich is a snare. It's a snare. I don't know if we have any trappers in here or hunters, but many of you perhaps are familiar with what it's like to use a snare. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, trap that's fastened by a noose or a notch, and they're a preferred way of trapping animals because of how easy they are to use. Right? They're not a hard instrument to use, and they're highly effective. It's a, it's a simple yet effective way to catch an animal. And for Satan... One of his go-to snares, one of his go-to traps for Christians is the snare of riches. It's an easy way for him to distract us from kingdom work. Right? For, for those of you who fish, right, the snare of riches is like power bait. If you, uh, if you go trout fishing, it's like this glob of it kind of smells bad, it's glittery and colorful, and you just put a giant glob of it on your hook and toss it out there. There's no finesse to it, you just, you just let it sit. But it always works, right? Trout love power bait. And for Satan, that's what riches are. He's like, man, I'm guaranteed to get a catch if I just throw this out here in front of Christians, in front of those who serve God, then I'm guaranteed to get a catch. And Satan loves nothing more than for us to have eyes that are set and distracted by the riches of this world. Because the truth is, Satan knows what one small desire can turn into. Paul tells us the desire to be rich leads to many senseless and harmful desires. And then again, he says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's just a seed. It's just a foot in the door for the devil, for many other things to start taking over your life. And the desire for things and the desire for wealth is so dangerous because of the way that it slowly consumes our vision. And we don't even see it all, all the time. Right? Think about how it works. You buy a nice TV. You tell yourself, all I want is a, is a decent-sized TV, and I'll be happy. I have a 65-inch that just isn't doing it. <laughs> I need an 85. <laughs> if I just get an 85-inch TV, I will be satisfied. And so you go out, and you get your 85-inch TV, and you watch some TV on it. But before long, you start to think, you know, I have this wonderful picture, but the sound doesn't quite match the picture. I need something that's going to deliver good sound that matches the quality of the picture that I have here. And so you go out and you start thinking like, okay, I got this sound system. It has five speakers. This one has 10. Which one? Probably the 10. And so you start thinking about and mulling over what is it that I want. And so you buy a sound system. And then before you know it, you've exhausted all of your movies, Right? It's like, I've watched all my movies three times, four times each, and so now I need Netflix and I need Amazon Prime and Disney Plus and a PlayStation 4 for movies and whatever it might be. And what happens is the desire for one thing multiplies into many. It's never just one purchase, is it? Right? It, it, it becomes many. And I say this from experience. I, did not, I don't have an 85-inch TV, but you know, I know what it's like, unfortunately. 
And that's how the desire for things work. They multiply into more. And it's not just multiplying into more purchases. It ends up taking your mental facilities, right? You start thinking about it and daydreaming about what you want. And when your mind is set on the things of this earth, it is very hard to be fruitful for the kingdom of God. It's hard to be fruitful for the kingdom of God when all you can think about are the things that you want, right? And you get on Facebook Marketplace and you get on, you know, all these different sites and you shop, right? Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. You cannot pursue God in possessions. They cannot coexist because you will always love the one and hate the other. So first of all, this morning, Beware of the danger of storing treasures on this earth because they will distract you from your true work. The second danger of storing up treasure on this earth is that left unchecked, it will send you to hell. Left unchecked, it will send you to hell. Consider Philippians 3.19. Paul describes the enemies of the cross. Right, the enemies of the gospel. And here's what he says. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Right, what do enemies of the cross do? Where, where is their mindset? What is it that people who are on their way to damnation do? Well, they set their minds on earthly things. That is where they're looking. That's where they find their satisfaction as Paul puts it, their God is their belly. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 12. It's the parable of the rich fool. And here's what he says. Jesus starts by saying, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And so he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. What does God say? God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What is true about the person who is laying up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God? What, what is true about the person who hoards possessions here on this earth and lives for worldly gain? Right, according to the mouth of God himself who came and walked among us, what is going to happen to those people? Well, the Bible says they do not inherit the kingdom of God. Right, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. God says your soul tonight, your soul is required of you. Now, is it possible for a Christian to fall into desiring the things of the world at times? Is it possible for a Christian to struggle with loving the world, maybe for short periods of time? Well, I think it is possible. James says we all stumble in many ways. 
First John says, if we say we have no sin, we make ourselves a liar. So, so sure, yes, Christians do stumble at times. Yes, sometimes we are drawn to the things of this world. But the key word is that we stumble. James uses that word stumble, and I think that's the key. James doesn't say that we fall flat on our faces all the time and then just lay there, right? No, we, we stumble. We're still on our feet we're still upright, we're still moving toward a certain direction, but we've just tripped up a little bit, right? We've just stumbled a little bit, but we're continuing to follow Christ and we're continuing to pursue Christ. And so I believe it is certainly possible for a Christian to stumble into desiring the riches of this world for a short time. But according to the word of God, that pattern cannot be allowed to continue for long in the life of a Christian the love of money and the love of earthly possessions cannot be allowed to perpetually continue in the life of a Christian because it's not just a snare that will keep us from being unfruitful in the kingdom of God. It is a snare that will kill us if we do not break free of it. Right? That's the truth of God's word. And here's why that is true. What is a Christian? What has God done for Christians? What, what did he save them from? Well, the Bible says that Jesus ransomed us from a lifestyle of futile ways, right? He ransomed us from our futility, from, from the, the empty pursuits of this world. And when we perpetually live as slaves to our desire for wealth, we are proving that Christ's work of ransoming sinners has not yet happened in our lives. 1 Peter 4, verse 3. Peter says, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. Right? The, the time that is past, before you were in Christ, that's the time for doing what Gentiles do. But now we live for the will of God. Right? Peter's like, back before you were saved, that was the time for you to indulge in the things of this earth. That was the time for, for storing up earthly wealth. The years before coming to know Jesus as your Savior, those were the times for chasing this world. Back when you were blind, and back when you were ignorant, and back when you were a slave to futility, that's when you had your time to live for this world and get your fill. But not anymore. Right Now we live for the will of God. Now we live to honor God because God has pulled us out of that, that flood of futility and he has repurposed us for his glory. Consider Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right, a Christian is someone who's not only been called to good works, but God has given them good works to accomplish, and he gives them the power to accomplish them. That's Ephesians 2. Ezekiel 36, 27 prophesies about the work that Christ would accomplish, the work that Messiah would do when he came. And the Bible says this, I will put my spirit within you, and will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
According to the prophet Ezekiel, when Messiah came, he would cause people to walk in God's statutes and obey him because why? The spirit has been put within his people, right? He causes them to do what is right. And Ezekiel says that all this, was, all this happened, the reason why God did this great work was to vindicate his great name among the nations. Israel had profaned God's name among the nations, Right? Israel did not spread the glory of God by their testimony and by their witness. They were a byword among the nations and they were a shame to God. But God said, for the sake of my glory, a day is coming when my spirit will be put in people and I will vindicate my reputation among the nations. Right? I will cause my people to reflect my glory and so if we go on pursuing the things of this world and continue living lives that really don't look any different than the people of this world, then what are we proving about our spiritual condition? Right? What are we proving about our hearts? We're proving that perhaps they have not yet been redeemed by Christ. John tells us if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is a, a real danger in having eyes for the things of this world as a Christian. So I challenge you, understand the dangers of laying up treasures on this earth. Understand how wonderful God is. So then what should we be pursuing? <laughs> we talked about the negatives. We talked about where our hearts should not be. The scripture gives us a very sobering warning right, about covetousness and about loving the things of this world. But what should we be pursuing? Obviously, we've covered where affection should not be. We've, we've covered what we should not be striving for. But what should a Christian be pursuing, right? What should our pursuits look like? Is there a treasure that we should be working for? So I want to spend this last little bit of our sermon describing the pursuit of Christians. What are we pursuing while we are here on this earth. Well, number one, we are setting our eyes on Christ. We're setting our eyes on Christ. Look at Matthew 6, 22. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So Jesus here brings up our eyes, right? The instruments that he has given us by which we see. And the principle that Jesus teaches here is actually a very well-known principle, and it's, it's a teaching that's very practical. And many of you perhaps have abode by this rule or abided by this rule, and, and maybe you understand the truth of it. But the principle that Jesus is teaching here is that wherever your eyes go, your body will follow. Right? Wherever your eyes go, your body will follow. I remember back when I lived in Idaho, um, we had awesome dirt biking trails and snowmobile trails up there, um, miles and miles of them. And uh, we had a church member who had, he had multiple dirt bikes and multiple snowmobiles. And so sometimes he would take people up in the mountains and we go ride, uh, spend a day riding. And so it was a lot of fun. And I, I really didn't have a ton of experience on a dirt bike before we, we went up in the mountains. 
And so he just kind of gave a couple pointers. He's like, he's like, oh yeah, when you're going up a hill, always stay on the gas, blah, blah, blah. And, and always be careful to look where you're going. Right? He would say, you know, keep your eyes about 30, you know, 20, 30 feet ahead of you. That way you can see what's ahead and find your route through the rocks and through the water. And honestly, we took dirt bites places I didn't know they could fit. It was really tiring. But he said, right? He said, look ahead, right? Look ahead. Keep your eyes forward because that's where you're going to go. You're going to go where your eyes are. And that was very important because I don't know how many of you guys have noticed that when you're driving down the road and you start looking at something off to the left, well, where does your car go? It goes to the left, right? It's a principle we all are familiar with. And so Jesus is telling us here as a Christian that it's very important that we pay attention to where we are looking. It is very important that we pay attention to where our eyes are set and what we are looking at and what we are meditating on. Because where we are looking is going to affect our bodies and our conduct that flows from our body. In Matthew 15, 18, Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the what? The heart. And it defiles a person and the principle is very similar when it comes to where we set our gaze, right? Where, where we set our gaze is going to impact our actions. If your eye is set upon being a good hunter, then the works of your body will follow. You'll go to the gym, right? You, you'll, you'll read up internet articles about whatever animal you're hunting, right? You'll spend time in the woods scouting. You'll, you'll get some practice with your rifle. That's all part of hunting. Your eye is on hunting, so your body follows and likewise, if your eye is set on Christ and set on your future with him and set on his rule over this earth that is active right now, then what's going to happen? You will serve him. You will imitate him. You will further his kingdom. 1 John 3, 3 says, All who thus hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our deeds will always follow the gaze of of our eyes. And, and because of this, it's very important that we are paying attention every moment in every, of every day where our focus is set and where our gaze lies. Right? We must be striving throughout our whole day to focus our eyes on Christ. Understand, this was not something that happens at the very first hour of the morning. Right? Setting your gaze on Christ is not just something that happens the first hour of the day when you open up your Bible and you spend some time in the Word and you pray. This is something that must happen throughout your whole day. Paul says, take every thought captive to Christ. Right? That sounds impossible, but it's something we must strive to do. Our eyes should be set on Christ every moment of this day. It's, it's, we, we must be striving to actively love Christ and, and not letting anything hinder Christ from being on our minds. How often were the Old Testament Israelites supposed to be speaking the things of God? Right? There's a speak to their families, morning, noon, night, right? Always be speaking the, the, this law that God had given them. Right? Always keeping in the front of their mind the, the law of God and the statutes of God. And likewise, that is how it is with Christ as well. We are to be setting our gaze on Christ and keeping him 
on the forefront on our minds all of the day as well. <clears throat> well, sorry. So I'm, I'm currently working a job. I'm, I'm driving a tow truck um, all day, every day. And it's not a glamorous job by any means. Uh, I'm not a first responder, so I'm not like the person who saves people from the side of the road. I actually, I'm just hauling total vehicles from one lot to another. So, I mean, really, you don't have to have any skill. You just drag a truck on the trailer, and then as long as it doesn't fall off, that's really all that matters. <laughs> so if you see, <laughs> yeah, just don't ask. If you see a tow truck driver, it probably wasn't me. But, but that's my job. And, and I spent a lot of time just sitting, right, just sitting in a truck. And I have, I have an option of what I can do while I sit in my truck. Right? I, I can sit there and listen to brainless music, I can sit there and daydream about worthless pursuits. And by worthless, I just mean meaningless pursuits, right? I, I could sit there and think about the earthly things that I love, or I could fill my mind with the things of God and the things that please God. That's, that's the choice I have. And I found that on the days that when I listen to sermons and, and, and meditate on scripture and set my affection on Christ, that I am more inclined to be patient with people and to not get angry at people who camp in the left lane. <laughs> right? I, I'm more inclined to be joyful and, and to be content with where I am, even though it's not my first choice. And I'm more inclined to even share the gospel and speak the truth of Christ. Right? But on the days when I let my mind be idle and, and, and I don't, feed my mind with the thoughts of God and not feeding it with bad things, but I'm not meditating actively on Christ. Right? On those days, it's just kind of a feeling of haze. Right? There's just kind of a haze that falls over me. It's not that I'm absolutely evil, but there's just no desire to do good. It's just kind of like blah, right? I feel a little bit less sanctified on those days. I feel a little bit devoid of the Holy Spirit. And I kind of honestly just feel more like a bear <laughs> than I do a sheep, right? And this is no doubt why it's so important for us to always be setting our eyes on Christ, right? And taking every thought captive to Christ because where your mind is, your body will follow, right? You wonder why you struggle with a certain sin. Well, what are you feeding all day, right? What are you feeding? Are you feeding your flesh, or are you feeding the things of God, right? You wonder why you're not as joyful all the time as you should be, or, or, or maybe why, why you don't share the gospel as much as you should. Well, where is your mind throughout the day? What, what are you feeding? It makes a difference. The, the, the word of God is true. Right, so Christians, as Christians, we are to be setting our gaze on Christ. We're to be pursuing Christ and, and always taking our thoughts captive to him. But there's a second pursuit that should also, also occupy the Christian's life. And a second thing that we should be actively pursuing, and that is storing up heavenly treasure. Right, we've, we've talked about how we're not to be setting up treasure on earth. We, we've talked about how we're not to be pursuing the things of this world. Well, Jesus does give us something that we are to be pursuing, and that is the treasure which lies in heaven. And this, of course, happens by being rich in good works. Look again at Matthew chapter 6. 
Here's what Christ says. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There is a sector of evangelicalism that would claim that teaching people to do good works and teaching believers to, to strive to obey Christ and do good works, they would say that that is legalism. Right? They would say that that's, in a way, teaching a works-based righteousness. They would say that we should never preach good works at all and that all that matters to God are really just the motives of our hearts. Right? It's not what we do that matters. It's only the heart that matters to God. And the truth is that people who believe this do not know their Bibles, right? Because the Bible teaches us time and time again to be rich in good works and to watch our works and watch carefully how we walk and that the treasure we receive in heaven will be based upon the works we have done in this body. Consider 1 Timothy 6, 17. Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Right? Paul says it is by good works, it is by doing the good deeds and the things that please God that we store up treasure in heaven. Titus 3, Paul again says, remind them, talking to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then again at the end of that same chapter in Titus 3, Paul says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. The Bible teaches us that we are, we are, we are to strive to do good works and to be striving in good, good works and devoting ourselves to the things of God and obeying God because it is by these good works that we gain treasure in heaven. Right? We, we should do good works because we know that once we get to heaven, we will be rewarded according to the things we did in the flesh. And, and if you think about it, this is the one time in the Bible that Jesus actually tells us to store up anything for ourselves. Right? It's one of the few times, normally we're reading about the sacrifices we must make, how we must love our brother and, and love God and do all things out of a love for God or our brother. Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and took the form of a servant. But here, Jesus says that it is okay for us to seek to lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. It's okay to be rich in good works for heaven. And he even motivates us and says, because why? You'll, be, you'll get to enjoy them forever. They're not gonna fade away. This is treasure that's gonna last. It's gonna be a treasure that, that you will truly get to enjoy for eternity. And this is a treasure that we gain by doing good works. The question is, 
what constitutes a good work? Do we get treasure just for any good thing that we do, or are there qualifications for what a good work is? And I want to end this morning by giving us uh, two necessary things for something to be a good work and worthy of treasure, right? Two necessary things that are part of what a good work is. And first of all, a good work must be done out of love and devotion to God, Right, for something to be considered a good work, it must be done out of love and devotion for, uh, sorry, to God. The, the Bible tells us that it is possible for someone to do good things without those things being pleasing in the eyes of God. Take, for instance, Israel in the book of Isaiah. What does God say about Israel? So these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Right, with their mouths, Israel was, was uh, paying lip service to God. They were singing his praises. Right? They were reciting his words. They were offering his sacrifices. They were hiding his words even in their hearts. They knew it well. But what was the problem? Their heart was far from God. Right, there was a huge deficiency and a huge lack, and that is that those works were not done out of a genuine love for God. And in fact, a little bit further in Isaiah, the Bible will actually say that even their fear of God is only there because it's a commandment of men. Yeah, they feared God, but why? Was it because they loved God? No. It was because this is a commandment of men. That's that's quite splitting hairs, but it is possible to even fear God for the wrong reasons according to the book of Isaiah, right? Israel was doing the right things, but their works were empty in God's eyes because it did not proceed from a heart that loved him. So I would propose this morning that first of all, in order for a work to be a good work and a work to be a pleasing work in the sight of God, it must be done out of love and devotion to God. It doesn't mean that it's always easy. Doesn't mean that we always enjoy it as much as, uh, you know, as much as we should, but it does mean that they are motivated by love for God. Even Jesus went to the cross and despised the shame, but did it out of love for God and love for us. And secondly, this morning, in order for a good work to be classified as a good work, it must be done according to God's word. It must be done according to God's word. Think about the words of Paul in Romans 10. He's talking about Israel. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God, to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What was the error of these Pharisees? Right, well, th these brothers of Paul, right, according to the flesh, what was their error? Well, Paul says they had a zeal for God. They were zealous about God. They were zealous about his glory, but not according to knowledge, right? Not according to knowledge. They had a zeal for God, but instead of conforming to God's commandments, they became wise in their own eyes and made their own righteousness. 
right? The righteousness, the so-called righteousness that they had was not according to God's will, right? They made their own commandments. They failed to understand that the law was never meant to be a means of righteousness, but the law was meant to be a guardian to hold them under sin until Christ came who was promised by Abraham. Yeah, they loved God's word. Yeah, they had a zeal for God, but it was not according to knowledge, right? And so the important thing is for us that we must realize is that a good work is not something that we define, right? A good work is not something that simply issues from a zealous heart. Your heart is not the only thing that matters, right? Some people say, oh, as long as my heart's in the right place, that's all that matters to God. No, that's not true, He gives us his word, and a good work is something that God defines in his word, right? God defines what a good work is, and God is the one who makes the terms, and our responsibility is to be careful to pay attention to God's word and to make sure that we are understanding it right. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by what? that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, right? It is necessary for us to look closely at God's word and and determine what truly is pleasing to God because it is not hard, it is not hard to fall into error. Again, Ephesians 5, 17, Paul says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I understand what the will of the Lord is. It is necessary for us to be discerning as we come to God's word so that we can truly determine what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Right? It is important for us to always be mulling over scripture so that we can know God's will and therefore do it. Because a good work is only a good work if it is conformed to the will of God. Right? So by doing good works, yes, we're storing up treasure. No, we don't see it now. Yes, we have to have faith that it's really there. But Christ tells us that this treasure that we store up in heaven, it will be so worth it, right? What no eye has seen nor ear heard is what God has prepared for those who love him. So this morning, I want to challenge you to evaluate your life, evaluate what you love, evaluate what your life says that you love. Are are you captured? Are you in the snare of love for this world? Because I know when you're in that snare, it's hard to get out. It is all you can do to turn your eyes from from the appeal of this world and force them onto God. It's not easy. But I challenge you to strive to do so. Right? Labor to get out of that trap. Labor to get out of that pit and that snare that the devil has got you in. Right? Because we want to be fruitful and we truly do have a greater treasure that is waiting for us in heaven. Right? Turn yourself to Christ. Turn yourself, turn your hope to heaven and do works accordingly. Because Jesus tells us that anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of him. Right? And any one of us who does not renounce all that we have, we cannot be his disciple. Jesus demands everything, right? 
So I want to encourage you this morning to turn fully to Christ, set your hope fully on him, and do good works in keeping with repentance. Let's pray. Lord God, we just, um, we see the hardness of your scripture, Lord, the absoluteness of it. Um, But Lord, the reason why it's so glorious is because we've come to discover the greatness of the kingdom of God. Lord, we, we have come to discover the pearl of greatest price that is worth selling all that we have to attain it. But Lord, it is so hard sometimes to keep our eyes off of the things of this world. It is a constant battle, especially in a nation that is so prosperous and so full of wonderful things of this earth. So Lord, I ask that you would grant your people just the ability to turn our eyes upon you. Help us to understand that that it is possible, Lord, to take every thought captive, but it is possible for us to obey, otherwise you would not have commanded it. Lord, you supply strength, you furnish strength to those who are yours so that they may obey your commandments. Lord, let us not be deceived into thinking that we can't. Let us not be deceived into thinking that once we're in a trap, we can't get out, Lord. You have conquered, you are victorious, your gospel is a message of victory. So, Lord, give us hearts to believe it. Give us eyes to see you. And, Lord God, just cause us to walk in your ways and to be fruitful on this earth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.